Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Ben Vogley, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by Sven Steinmo, a professor of political science at the University of Colorado Boulder. Over the past 10 years, Steinmo was the Robert Schumann Professor at the European University Institute in Florence, Italy, as well as a senior research fellow at Nuffield College at Oxford. In the past, Steinmo has been a Fulbright Fellow, a German Marshall Fund senior scholar, a Stint senior researcher, and an Abe Fellow. Steinmo's work has ranged quite broadly across several disciplines. In addition to his work in political science, he has written on evolutionary theory, taxation policy, behavioral economics, psychology, public budgeting, and history. Professor Steinmo is the author of numerous books, including, most recently, Willing to Pay, a Reasonable Choice Approach, which examines how institutions shape individual behaviors and is scheduled for publication later this year. Professor Steinmo, it's a pleasure to have you joining us today. Thank you. To start, I'd love to hear about why you chose to pursue a career in the social sciences. I've heard that immediately after college, you worked as a carpenter and in the North Sea oil fields. So how did you transition from there to academia? And were those early days in the oil fields potentially just all part of the plan? <laughs> no, uh, no. actually, I applied to graduate school uh, while working on an oil platform in the North Sea. Um, and I, I think the, the, the truth is I applied to, I, I decided I wanted to become a college professor because I thought college professors had three-month vacations. And that sounded a lot <laughs> better than freezing my ass off in the North Sea. No, very understandable. So, unfortunately, we don't get three-month vacations. <laughs> That's the yeah, time we yeah, are I teaching so we can write. <laughs> no, I know a few professors here, and it doesn't sound like they're vacationing too frequently. No. Um, so, you know, obviously, you've had a pretty successful career in academia since then. And your latest book, Willing to Pay, A Reasonable Choice Approach, is coming out soon. So we'll get to the book's findings in just a moment. But what generally is the book about, and what was the impetus behind your writing of the book? Well, I've, I've had, there have been two sides to my career. I used to do uh, consulting for businesses um, in what was called cross-cultural training and uh, management. So I would help teams of people, General Motors, Whirlpool, large corporations, uh, deal with cultural conflict, you know, when the Germans and the French couldn't deal with each other, or Americans come into an a new situation, they're profoundly arrogant. Uh, and and so I was hired because I'd lived in a lot of different countries to and, and understood political economy a bit um, to help kind of manage some of these conflicts. And then in my academic world, I was writing about how institutions shape everything. So, but people who study culture on the one side, mostly sociologists and maybe anthropologists, um, never speak with political scientists or political economists or economists mm -hmm. who think everything's motivated by self-interest. So I was curious because I think both are true. Cultures matter as well as institutions and incentives and self-interest. So the book was really motivated by trying to understand, figure out if we could in some sense meld or bring together uh, a cultural analysis or an understanding of culture and the way in which self-interest and institutions shape our behaviors. Absolutely. 
And yesterday during the talk that you gave for the Rockefeller Center and also Dartmouth's Department of Sociology, you had a few pretty amusing anecdotes about the reasons behind your writing of the book that kind of backed up the very valid reasons that you just gave. Would you mind sharing some of them? There's one about um, garbage being thrown okay, out of a yeah. car in Italy. The, 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 <laughs> the grant I won from the European Research Council is very, very wonderful grant. Um, I got it be, um, by what motivated me was I was walking up to my house uh, or to the apartment I lived in, in near Fiesole in Italy. And I saw a man pull up to the of these big garbage cans, stick his hand out the window with a garbage bag in it and drop the garbage right next to the can while he had his wife and two small children in the car who were uh, I was just stunned. I mm -hmm. actually ran towards him to try and stuff. Like, <laughs> fortunately, he took off, so I didn't get beat up. But uh, I, I just, I, I could not imagine that a an Norwegian or a Swede would, even a young man in the middle of the night, in the middle of a forest, throwing garbage out the window. And when I asked people in Italy about this, they said, "Oh, it's our culture. It's our culture." Mm -hmm. And and you hear this story all the time. You hear people saying, "Well, that's the way we do things. It's our culture." or Scandinavians are known to be very honest, right? So it's our culture. Yeah. And so I, I, it, so I, on the one hand, I think culture matters. On the other hand, it seems like it's a culture is this catch-all that everything gets thrown into. And I wonder to understand, are Italians genuinely less honest, less uh, social than are Scandinavians? And that was the motivation. Right. Oh, that's very interesting. And so in the book, you went about investigating those cross-cultural differences. And could you tell us a bit about the experimental design that you employed to test those different attitudes? The basic idea behind the uh, research project was to create a set of institutions that is in a laboratory environment, basically set a set of rules that would incentivize people to either pay uh, taxes mm -hmm. or defect and cheat on the others in the room. So it, yeah. I, I can't, of course, explain the entire experiment, but the simple, in a simple way of thinking that you're in a room with a bunch of other people. Nobody knows what you're going to do. And the question is, uh, will you pay into a pot, which everyone will share from, or just mm -hmm. take the money that everybody else put into the pot? Nobody knows what you did uh, or will do. What would you do? And my question was, would people in some countries be more likely to cheat the community, the pot, uh, than in other countries. Right. And so uh, that's what we did. I did this in uh, uh, five countries, 17 different laboratories, uh, almost wow. 2,000 uh, uh, participants or subjects. And um, it was the largest, as far as I know, the largest uh, behavioral experiment uh, ever done anywhere in terms of the, the the breadth and the numbers of participants. Yeah. No, that's very interesting. And could you tell us a bit about some of the findings that you encountered, the differences in attitudes that you observed between people of different nationalities? Yes. Um, the first thing I would say is the our findings were not what I expected. Hmm. And as a researcher, for me at least, as a researcher, the most fun thing that can happen is when you're surprised by the actual data. It's actually not very interesting to find out what you thought right. was true is true, right? Yeah, all right. You probably biased yourself. 
I expected Italians to be much more likely to cheat each other than, let's say, the Swedes or the Americans or the Brits. That turned out not to be true. That was the British subjects that were the most likely to cheat each other. Hmm. Um, Swedes and Americans were actually almost identical. They're, Swedes and Americans are both quite likely to contribute to a public good uh, if they are uh, they're sharing that public good. Italians did cheat each other a little bit less than uh, a little bit more than Americans or Swedes, but much were much more honest uh, and willing to contribute than were Brits. So that was the first like shocking yeah, to me, surprising. Yeah. Another interesting um, uh, finding that goes across countries is that women are more honest than men everywhere, of hmm. every condition, any way you put it. Men cheat more than women do. And um, that's an interesting thing. I've, actually, I find this funny. It was very difficult to publish that finding. Yeah. Because that would imply, or people would say, uh, in fact, I was accused of being an essentialist or a sexist. Mm -hmm. It's just the data. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. I'm, I can't tell you exactly why women are more honest than men in everywhere from Romania to Sweden, but they are. And the amount of difference, another interesting thing, is the, the difference between the behavior of men and women is about the same in every country. So men are more, uh, women are more honest than men in Sweden by the same extent as they are in Britain, even though Brits overall uh, are less honest than men. And so broadly, what are your hypotheses behind some of those findings? Specifically, it was interesting to hear that Brits are more likely to cheat each other than, say, Swedes or Americans. And the gender finding is also, you know, provocative and interesting. And so what are your thoughts on this? Well, there, um, each of those have, have different explanations. Uh, certainly, for each of those, certainly. Right? Um, yeah. I think that part of the... Uh, to be honest, I think laboratory experiments that I spent a lot of time doing have pretty significant flaws. One of which is the, the, the best part of an out laboratory experiment, the logic behind them, is that you can control the environment in which the decisions are made. The problem with that is the decisions are not made exclusively in the laboratory. They come as a context around them. Uh, so the political economic context in Britain at the time was around Brexit, around student fees being mm. increased. And I think a lot of people were feeling very screwed uh, in Britain and were therefore more likely to screw each other. Uh, whereas in Italy, they, which is the other most surprising finding, I think, there was a sense that um, there was a sense that American that that the government was under Berlusconi was making a terrible mistake by letting Berlusconi essentially get away without paying his taxes. Right. So. I think a lot of the people in the laboratory said, I'm not going to behave that way, right? So in other words, the external environment for the laboratory actually affects the behavior in the laboratory, even though you've spent enormous amount of effort to make it um, insular, let's say. That's tricky. However, um, I think that, so, but I don't mean to say that I think laboratory experiments are, are baloney. I don't, uh, but I mean, you have to be careful to understand them and interpret them. Um, and when you find a finding like gender matters across countries in thousands of, uh, uh, of examples, it's, uh, it uh, pieces the experiment with thousands of subjects, you can say that's a pretty consistent finding. Um, the, the other thing is that, that 
what we can say very clearly, and I'm not the only behavioralist who's come to this conclusion, mm -hmm. is that we can say for sure that the basic assumptions that modern economics or economists make about human behavior are wrong. Hmm. If uh, uh, we can also say, and this I can show you, that um, economists are the most likely group to cheat in every country. So, uh, I'm an economics major. And yeah, I can yeah, see well, that. So you've been trained, but you've been trained as a liberal arts college. You probably got fluffy economics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you were really trained, if you were at MIT, uh, you'd be turned in hardcore economics. Oh yeah. Uh, and, uh, and that matters. In other words, that that gets to the point of culture. So there are subcultures. There's a subculture of economists. Unfortunately, that subculture of economists has profound uh, uh, power in a lot of countries, especially America. Um, but uh, one way I like to put it, so if you were a, uh, I, I could predict quite a, uh, uh, with a high degree of accuracy, if you were a male British economist, you're almost certainly cheated. <laughs> if you were a uh, an American arts art history major and a female, you almost certainly contributed 100% of your income in taxes or the tax you should have paid. And so uh, uh, what does that tell you? It tells you that the training you get as well as the culture that you, it's part of the culture who you become. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that we'll get to this point that you made about economists a bit later. Uh, right now, though, I'm very interested in the findings that you found in the United States. Uh, basically, people in the U.S. are generally more willing to contribute than people in other countries on average. And I believe that you ascribe that to people in the U.S. being more, quote, pro-social than other individuals in different countries. However, I often think of people in the United States as being very individualistic. Right. And so how do you reconcile that stereotypical individualism of people in the United States with those pro-social attitudes? Um, I, if, at one level, I found that finding surprising as well. So um, Americans are not more pro-social hmm. than Scandinavians, but very similar to Scandinavians. It's interesting, by the way, the Scandinavians are also called individualists um, because they like to express their individuality like Americans do. Right. Americans consider themselves to be individualists because we, are, we tend to be quite creative, and we are. But being an individual doesn't mean you're willing to screw your neighbor, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. uh, I think of myself as an individual or maybe individualistic. I followed my own path through my academic career, for example. I used to be a, a carpenter and, a, and an oil worker, and here I am a professor. I think that's a fairly unique thing, and I, I'm yeah. proud of that, let's say. Um, but that doesn't mean I want to screw you, right? Um, I can both be an individual. I can, one can be creative. One can be uh, individual in the ways, I, positive ways one would like to think of it without meaning that you're a selfish son of a bitch. That's a pretty good answer. Thank you. So my next question has to do with, again, your observations about economists and the perfectly rational assumptions that they use to explain human behavior, or rather their assumptions that human beings are perfectly rational. Um, you know, given your findings, which kind of run contrary to that, how would you recommend that economists balance their models, which, you know, sometimes overgeneralize and aren't applicable to the real world with 
the insights that you know people like you are generating about how culture and institutions can impact human behavior. Well, first, let's be clear about the fact that many of the people that have broken down the um, the pure rational choice model of Buchanan and others um, are economists themselves. So behavioral economics um, has spent a lot of time uh, exploring real behavior. Now, mm. it's the, the Kahneman and Tversky type social psychologists who also won a Nobel Prize in economics, or at least uh, Kahneman did, um, who are probably the most famous. But there are many, many economists who've also disproven the rational choice assumptions. So one of the interesting things also, though, is that economists' behavior, uh, the, the, ver the difference between the general population and the economists was apparent in every country. That is to hmm. say, economists cheat more than their peer group in every country I studied. However, in some countries, they cheat less than they do in other countries. So uh, we then looked at the training economists get. And if you are trained in, in so for example, in, uh, in Italy, economists are also trained to read Marx. He was an economist after all. Yeah. Not very many economists in America today are reading Marx or Thorsten Veblen or mm. uh, Schumpeter, for that matter, John Maynard Keynes. A lot of economists in undergraduate school at the University of Colorado, where I teach, have never heard of John Maynard Keynes, hmm. as hard as that is to believe. So if you're just trained, if, if your economist training is mostly math, 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 to make that math simple, simple enough for an economist, because they're not talking about that's real uh, mathematicians, you make very simple assumptions. If you then teach people those assumptions are real, which is kind of what you need to do in order to justify it, yeah. then people are going to believe, ah, everybody's a cheater, I might as well be too. As uh, Margaret Levy, uh, another political scientist who studied uh, behavior and, and taxation, uh, wrote, no one wants to be a sucker. So if you're trained that everybody is a cheater, you're going to be a cheater too, even if that wasn't what you wanted to believe in the first place. All right. Interesting. So you've made an impact in many disciplines and across many countries. Uh, I think you've lived in Japan, Italy, the UK, among other places. Uh, so with that in mind, do you have words of wisdom for undergraduates who are also hoping to make a difference in the world? <laughs> um, it's, it's, it never ask somebody if they have words of wisdom. It's it's just hmm. uh, it's too pretentious to yeah, answer that. Yeah. Any advice in that case? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, the first thing I would, uh, or I'm probably speaking mostly to Americans, um, I would say travel, and I don't mean just go to Florence for two weeks. Uh, do a study abroad for a full year and live with a family. Don't hang out with a bunch of other friends and drink a lot because you can finally drink before your age of 21, which is a lot of study abroad programs. I would say learning about other cultures, learning about why, um, how other people believe and why they believe different things is number one. And what I find most important about that is by in so doing, you learn about your own culture, your own assumptions. And that then can lead you to understanding your world in a way which is very different from reading books. That's great advice. Well, 
Professor Steinma's book, Willing to Pay, A Reasonable Choice Approach, is coming out soon, and I'd recommend that you pick it up if you'd like to learn more about his work. Professor Steinma, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for inviting me. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Hemlock. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. If you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.